Harry, said Basil Hallward, looking him straight in the face, every portrait is, that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter, it is rather the painter who, on the colored canvas, reveals himself. The reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I am afraid that I have shown it in it the secret of my own soul. Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. All right. Well, um, first of all, you do a lovely posh accent, sir. Nicely, yeah, I <laughs> found the done. trick. I studied. I studied at Oxford briefly, and I, I find the trick <laughs> as an American is you don't want to try to sound Britishy. You just have to try to think kind of kind of posh way because if you actually try to sound British, you'll sound like a you know like kind of like a muppet or something. <laughs> all right well well welcome back so so this week is a, a a first a seminal first in fact we are adding a third person in mr peter kaiser hello everyone um so, so peter Happy to be here well we are glad to have you so peter is um Peter actually is two people, which is nice. Which makes this, this, it's actually a four-person podcast. That's what I say. It's a four-person podcast. Right, and it's not actually a mental affliction. So what it is is um, so Peter joins us um, as, as both a, a former uh, potter of some, of some renown, some mm-hmm. repute, um, and also, um, I, I'm not going to get your title right, as a, a lead technologist. That is my title. That is, that is your title, oh, well, lead well technologist. Done. Right, right. Well, I this this is the extent of my prep work. So, <laughs> so th- we're gonna go around kind of kind of reverse word to um. So why would Peter be here, uh, Tobias, uh, Doctor Tobias Wilson Bates? Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> um, he's here because art is is really confusing. Um. <laughs> And, and and technology is even more confusing than art. Uh, is that that's I, I don't know if that clarified anything. No, no, no. But I suspect the two of them together might be especially confusing. Is what you seem to be hinting at. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Today we really want to talk about robots that produce art. Uh, is the mm. thing that that these machines and robots is also a misnomer. Technologies that produce art mechanically, um, and autonomously. Should these things be considered artists? Should the things that they produce be considered art? Which is, of course, why I started with a quote from A Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I was just about to say, what we probably should do before we go any further is actually contextualize your, your um, masterpiece theater performance <laughs> um, <laughs> at this very beginning here. So uh, when we figured out that we were going to get a, a, a brilliant double person on the show... Uh, I thought, well, how do we contextualize this conversation in a way that's accessible but also interesting? Uh, And I went through and I looked at a bunch of theories of art, uh, theories of fiction, theories of kind of truth and reality. And and I was like, this this stuff is all making it worse. It's making it much worse. (laughs) Um, And And by by making it much worse, 
So I and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and just point out that um that uh Peter actually uh very kindly listened to kind of an earlier yeah. episode of ours <laughs> and he, he shot me he shot me an email that said basically like well you think robots can produce art and and that kind of led us on I think about four or five different goose chases uh, and we end up here and uh, and I think that is um. Kind of based upon what you're looking at, uh, Tobias, um, I think I think it feels like that's the kind of question: Can robots produce art? That starts off as a simple question, mm-hmm. turns into a really complex question, gets simple again, maybe more complex, <laughs> and then and then eventually you just go in for you go for a drink. Yeah, no, that's right. precisely right. I think most drinking has resulted from this question. <laughs> so, but there is an actual link between artistic output and technology. There is the technology of art mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. craft of making art. It's one of the things that has drawn me to almost every creative endeavor I've ever done. Right. Which is that there is, you know, there's sort of a geeky technology. I mean, if you go way, way back, sometimes the technology is decidedly analog, um, you know, like hitting a hammer on an anvil with a piece mm-hmm. of molten iron. But there is a technology to producing beautiful creative work. Hmm. That's really interesting because like, when you think about, like, I, so I was up in New York the other day and um, I went to the Natural History Museum with my uh, six-year-old. And we were walking to the Natural History Museum, and one of the things beyond the, um, um, I would say beyond the, the skeletons and the, the stuffed animals of various sorts, you end up in, you do end up in these areas where you're looking kind of early man, right? And you end up with two things in early man. You end up with, that, that represent early man, and you end up with technology and art, right? You end up with the, the tools that they use and the art that they produce. Those are the two things that you end up with when you're looking at early civilization. Yep. And that goes back very much to uh, working for many, many years with studio artists or studio craftsmen, um, a, a sort of a debate that always raged in the fine crafts arena where I spent close to 20 years professionally, uh, even more actually when I moved my early foray into making stuff with and all the way back to middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, you know, is it art or is it craft? Right. And, right. And I think those lines have gotten, just con- continue to get blurred. Right. Starting off, just like talk about like, so your first life as a potter. Okay. So, well, actually, I'll go even, I'll go before my first life as a potter and go to when I actually started making stuff, which was actually when I was 12 years old and it was out of leather things out of leather, leather craft. And I did that all through middle school and high school and even did it semi-professionally through high school doing craft shows mm-hmm. during the summers and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then when I went off to college, I went wanted to go and study some sort of art. And I'd always done drawing and different kinds of things. And, um, I wound up at Bennington College in southern Vermont and studying... Art, which uh, mm-hmm. actually 
when you were a major at Bennington, you had to have two disciplines. You had to have a 3D and a 2D. So I was studying ceramics, and I was studying And so that, that's what, you know, and then when I got out of college, I basically launched a career of being a professional studio artist and craftsman mm -hmm. uh, and did it for professionally for 19 years. I love the, first of all, I love the idea that they, that their, their idea of diversification was 3D and 2D. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going to, we're going to diversify our students by dimensions. Right. Like, do we yeah, have 4D yeah. artists? <laughs> right. Well, I, Maybe Let me study time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so you 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 uh, Southern Vermont, which I assume is rife with hippies, is yes. <laughs> is so you're you're there. You're you're producing um, pottery. It becomes yeah. your. It, it becomes what what I did, and I moved back to Baltimore. Started working in a um, a studio co-op here in Baltimore that was just getting started. Uh, um, Back in 1980, and I spent about eight, seven, eight years there. And then my I was actually successful, and I was selling work, and I needed to move out into a larger space. And so I moved into my own studio space, which I had for another 11 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I was producing a lot of work traveling around the country, shops and galleries around the country, as well as directly to the public. What's what's really interesting to me about this is this idea, um, you know, is keep us kind of uh, anchored in this question of of robots and art in some ways. But is this idea of kind of art and craft? Mm -hmm. First of all, is this like pottery is an interesting art in that it is first and foremost, at least ostensibly functional. Uh, most of it is, although uh, if you go to the higher end. Uh, craft art and craft shows, you see a lot of very sculptural stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and within the what I would characterize as the fine crafts movement, which you know I would clay artists, glass artists, fiber artists, jewelry makers, mm -hmm. metal metal artists. Um, glass is the medium that sort of got elevated to the pure art level mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And we can thank Dale Chihuly for mm -hmm. that, I think, primarily. Uh, um, glass is a really interesting medium. So, but you have a broad spectrum. And as somebody who made primarily functional work, to me it was always somewhat mildly offensive to say, well, if you can use it, it's not art. <laughs> you know? And this know. strikes me... You know, there was a thing you said earlier uh, where you used these kind of three words of, of beautiful, creative work, um, which I think is really interesting about it because it, it seems to triangulate the creativity, the aesthetic dimension, but then also like potentially this kind of work dimension, both in terms of the work that's done in the product and also the work that the product might do. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm interested in kind of grouping those maybe a little bit by this quote that I read uh, from Picture of Dorian Gray. But the guy says, every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist. Um, how much do you feel like your work was you? Or is that relationship not so important for you for art? Oh, no, it was, it was uh, actually, it was me. Because at the same time that I started exploring making things with my hands, even before clay with leather, I also was starting to explore 
making delicious things to eat. <laughs> In other words, the, the culinary crafts. And so my career as a potter was almost a melding of those two because I was making work that was intended to serve and present wonderful food. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and let me just, I'll, I'll chime in here editorially. I've actually had dinner with uh, Mr. Kaiser. Uh, I, I haven't used his pottery. His, his food, on the other hand, <laughs> executes well. Um, so, so at some point, and this is what's really, and again, probably why you're on the podcast on this, this, this point, which is at some point you say, all right, I'm, I'm done with pottery for a right. variety of reasons. Right. Um, and eventually you decide the next obvious step is not to become like a, like a merchant of other people's pottery. You're not going to turn a business into like, like selling pottery overseas or something like that. You go into technology. You go into, yep. you, you go back and learn to code. Yep. So, well, and like I said, I always had, I was always drawn towards the technology of producing something delicious. Um, and, you know, sort of deep and so this was in the late 90s. It was the early days of the web. And the web was just getting started. And actually, a friend of somebody I knew said, oh, I want to tell you about this really cool thing called the World Wide Web. Maybe you should sell your pottery on it. <laughs> uh, but no, I just decided, the hell with that. I'm going to go learn how to make right. stuff that actually lives on the web. So if Etsy had existed at the time, we yeah. would, yeah. <laughs> you would yeah. still be making pots. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would. It, you know, I was um, doing it professionally for 18 years. So long. It's a hard way to make a living. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of factors in my personal life, you know, sort of um, in, intervened to just, you know, it was just time to move on. Right. Um, but, this, but there's sort of, so, but code, which is, I mean, I almost think there are there are few things like if you were a painter and moved to code, it almost feels like pottery is so tactile. Like if you think about one of the most sensual scenes in any film yes, ever, yes. Yeah, I know where you're, the, I know where you're going. Ghost, right? <laughs> yeah, like, you're like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what you are. You right. are like Patrick Swayze right. turned yeah. coder. Right. <laughs> Um, just for the record, I never had a Patrick Swayze experience <laughs> sitting at my pottery ah, wheel. But I like to think that you still have a pottery wheel, and it could still happen for you. Um, yeah, but code <laughs> is code is all not all that different. And so, uh, I will characterize it like this: when you when you make pottery, you're dealing with a raw material that looks nothing like what you're going to make, and you run it through a process it into a shape, you let it dry, you glaze it, the glazes in their raw state look nothing like they do in their finished state, put it into kilns, you heat it to a very high temperature, a lot of chemical reactions happen, it cools down, and it comes out and it produces this. Mm -hmm. I, to me, that is somewhat analogous to writing a bunch of lines of code and running them through a web browser and on the other end of the screen mm. is, a is a beautiful interface. It's not that different. It's, it's this sort of abstracted way of thinking that I was very comfortable with because of so many of the creative endeavors I had done early on in my life 
were basically just that. Mm. Interestingly enough, early on in sort of in when the web was very young, many of the people that gravitated to being web designers and web developers and writers were musicians because it's a similar kind of mindset. It's a bunch of notation on, you know, on basically tablature, mm -hmm. and you know that by these notes are going to come out with this particular melody. Interesting. It's like it's. I mean, so we all learn at a early age, like to take something, to take the technology of writing and turn it into language, right? right. Like that's that's one of the things that we learn. But yep. but artists and musicians. So I, you know, not to get too personal on the podcast, but so I have a six-year-old son who's currently, for whatever reason, has decided that music, like he's violin, and and watching him learn to like translate the a dot on a page into sound, yep. which is, strangely enough, it, it's not really any less conceptual than turning a shape on a page into a word, yep. and yet somehow it feels more, maybe because music is so um, kind of subtextual in the way that it kind of gets to us, and so sensual in the way that it gets to us, that that translation feels somehow more more conceptual. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting thinking about like that the early technologists weren't going right to the code. They were going, it made a lot of sense to say they could translate code into, into another experience and yep. they could kind of extrapolate. Yep. No, it's interesting. I mean, every, every type of creative output has its global dimensions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no different in the culinary arts. You, mm -hmm. you have to understand sort of Potential different flavors, you know, different flavor profiles, and how they go together. And it's it's, and and ultimately at the end of the day, for me, if there's a common thread through everything I've done creatively in my life, it's about producing something for someone. Mm -hmm. Whether they're using a piece of pottery that I made to eat their morning cereal out of, or whether they're Using an interface that I designed and developed, trying to think of a way. I love picturing people with like a twelve hundred dollars cereal bowl. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's how I like to live. Yeah. Well, my, <laughs> unfortunately, my cereal bowls didn't sell for twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> not 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 when I was doing it. Anyway. Well, but but so you get down to this kind of question of user experience, and I think this is where it's kind of a really interesting time to to start delving into and. And if our listeners will stick with us, we now get to do that that wonderfully messy, um, just throwing around this concept of, well, what is art? Is art user experience? I mean, so Toby, I'm I'm very interested in in kind of your thoughts on this. Is like because there's different theories of when art becomes art. Yeah, and you know, like this is these are the kind of geese that go running off that you chase. I mean, and it's part of the issue of like. If what we're talking about are just potentially beautiful intentional structures, then art seems like it could be anything at all, like a, a window, anything programmed, anything built, like anything that's taken any kind of intentional activity such that a user uh, at any point might look at it and find it beautiful. Like if I look at like a, 
uh, an object from like a caveman who chiseled it. And I'm like, that's so beautiful that that caveman chiseled that object. Um, and it seems like at, at a certain point, the word art ceases to be useful if we're just saying like sort of intentional human constructions. Um, and I, I don't know, like that's, that's one reason I tried to ground it a little bit with this quote, because is art about the artist? Is art about the intention? Is art about the user? Um, if it's none or all of these things, it seems like the word quickly becomes totally meaningless. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that, that's a problem because I feel like part of what, what I was really interested in adjudicating in this podcast a little bit is what exactly does it mean if uh, you know, machines are producing paintings now or machines are producing mm -hmm. you know, various kinds of illustration autonomously? Um, does that change anything at all? Is this like a is this like a zero in terms of it's just the exact same thing that was happening before, but now a bunch, um, right? Or is, is there like a something is changing now? Well, that's a really interesting point because so you know when I was looking around at machines producing art, like there's and and check our check our podcast notes. By the way, I. Uh, I, I got a, a listener who wrote in that said, "Please keep our please keep our show notes up to date." I will go back and <laughs> update our show notes. Oh wow! People, um, people are looking at the website. I know, right? Uh, hey, just, show notes are really important. Oh, they are. I know, and I've been lax on that. So I'll go back and put this in. So, but that's also my way of lazily citing something at the moment. <laughs> there's um, there's been some some researchers who've been doing some interesting work, um, and. Uh, it, they cited work that they're doing now where they are essentially, they created an algorithm that produces, that has figured out a way to produce art. And the way that they do it is they basically consume a lot of other art and essentially create, create I mean, I'm going to boil this down to a way in which if they actually listen to this podcast, they're going to say, oh, that's not what we're doing. But the, um, they, they created these two ways of basically triangulating against any other art for maximum creativity while at the same time aligning it within the context of art so that it falls within sort of a general genre of art. And again, this is all, this is all painting. And, and they, they produced all these, these works of art, and then they threw them into a judging contest where I, I actually don't know what kind of um, bona fides they required of the judges mm. in, order to, <laughs> in order to decide this. But they asked people to kind of judge the merit of the art and, and their, their, their appreciation of it. And in many cases, this AI-produced art um, outperformed um, the, the masterworks that they were putting it up against. So it's sort of like a super derivative engine. Right, exactly. It's a, <laughs> they, 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 they derived in a creative way new masterworks. And, and the, the way that this was reported was essentially like, Robots can produce better art than people, right? And and they did it by essentially consuming, you know, our history. And I think, Toby, I talked to you briefly about this, and you said, well, our Western history of art. <laughs> yeah, um, what's, what's actually getting digitized such that it can be now right. derivatively, you know, kind of combined. It's interesting. Uh, right. Samuel Taylor Coleridge divides theories of artistic production into these sort of two categories of the primary and secondary imagination. And he calls mm. the, the secondary imagination just like the combination of pre-existing things in the world. So it would be like what this computer was doing. So 
you could see a horn, you could see a horse, you could invent a unicorn. Like this isn't, he didn't consider this like a particularly imaginative thing. Um, and then he, the other thing he called the primary imagination, which he's super vague about, but he calls it the echo of God. <laughs> As one would have to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the echo of God's original I am, this idea that sort of creation, poesis, is born out of this initial act of declaring one's existence. Um, hmm. And at least along that, I mean, not that we need to take Samuel Coleridge, Coleridge on, like he was so doped up most of the time, but... <laughs> um, they, they were mostly at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were all these theories about like how drug states could allow you access to like forms of essentially what he's talking about, like this kind of God's original act of creation was accessible through kind of mind altering drugs. Um, but like uh, under these auspices, what the computer is doing is not art. It's just combining things that already exist. It's not actually doing a creative act. Well, I'll, I'll take as an example, one of my favorite contemporary artists, Chuck Close. Mm. who uh, does these amazing portraits that are essentially almost like a, like a pixel bit mapping of a human face. Mm -hmm. And of course a computer could do that. In fact, didn't Chuck Close sue somebody for creating like a filter? I think so, a, a yeah, Chuck yeah basically a Chuck Close filter. <laughs> but, but I would... I, I would, I think, contend that if you saw one of, you know, sort of a, cluck, a Chuck Close filter produced art piece mm -hmm. of um, portrait and one that the artist actually did, along with his assistance and stuff, because mm -hmm. he is handicapped, you, there would be no, you know, you could tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, because... Interesting. What difference? Like, I, I'm very... There, there, to me, there's... Well, it gets back to something that you put in the show notes, which is sort of the imperfection of it. So, mm -hmm. and we had talked about how many Persian and even Amish drug makers will put, intentionally put small imperfections in their rug, just to sort of indicate that it's handmade, or you know that 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 you know there is something very perfect and beautiful about the image. Mm -hmm. Well, the Amish in particular, if I understand this correctly, and I'm and, and the Amish who listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey it's a strong listener base for us. Yeah. Um, Fix your show notes, man. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but they, they do it as an attempt to not be, like only God can be perfect. Right. Right. Man's expression has to be inherently flawed, which is very funny to think. Like, I always think that the humility flaw is somehow an act of egotism in a way, which is I have to go actively put in a flaw because there's <laughs> there's no right. way right. like right. somehow this would have been perfect without. But nonetheless, like that's the idea that there's something. But the idea that there's something beautiful in a flaw and, you know, we kind of get back to this question of well, what if what if there is a perfect artistic production. So let's let's say that let's say that this algorithm that this um, researcher who you can look up in the show notes um, has set, like has created can produce essentially artwork that from a user experience perspective, from a viewer perspective, is perfect. Um, and Toby, I, I think you've mentioned in the past, which I thought was a great reference point, which is this idea in, in the in the novel um, it became a movie, but the novel I Robot with by Asimov, talks about how um, 
like the kind of the ultimate perfection of an artificial intelligence even takes into account the inefficient like build builds in inefficiencies in order to allow humans to function within <laughs> it like like if a, the ultimate artificial intelligence is actually strategically inefficient is that right yeah i mean it's like a it's like a really positive version of the matrix where mm. they've created a reality that humans are comfortable living inside of but a reality humans are comfortable in is not a perfect one but a flawed one right Right, and this idea. So, but let's say we come up with a perfect, like a like a calibrated, um, artistic expression. So we like a, a, the perfect painting is produced, right? Like, um, you know, imagine our our black mirror type future, <laughs> on a positive note though, perhaps, where where through a combination of of being able to read human experience, reading brain waves extrapolating from other previously produced art that the perfect artistic output is generated um and it is it is a transcendent experience to view this painting or whatever right and i guarantee you that there is a human somewhere who will not like it right <laughs> this is a man who's had his art adjudicated i see <laughs> right <laughs> but but this you know but in this world where we create this so we can say, well, well, has that robot, in fact, produced art? Um, I think that robot has probably produced something beautiful that mm -hmm. some people might consider art. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at the end of the day, art, ultimately, art is truly a personal experience for mm -hmm. a consumer of the art, mm. I think. So you put the art at the so the it's still a personal experience for the for the recipient. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, um, I, you know, I I had a, a colleague years ago when I was making um, M.A. pottery who got into one of the finest of the fine you know the high end fine craft shows mm. and was displaying his work with me. And he has a story of you know the opening preview night and and I was very very fancy run by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and two women walk by and look at his work and say, these prices aren't bad. Did you learn to love it? And the other one says, <laughs> and just they keep walking. <laughs> it's like, you know, so it's like, all right. <laughs> we don't like the artwork, but we can afford it. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess this this gives me a little end around to uh, maybe a, a place I was interested in possibly going with this. So um, this consumer t thing is interesting, is, especially because, you know, potentially couldn't the artist also be a consumer of his or her own art? Like, hmm. or isn't the artist in some ways the initial consumer of that art? Uh, 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 that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and that makes it interesting because, well, I mean... Is the artist's consumption of their own art the same or a different thing from the consumption by, you know, women seeing if they could learn to love it or uh, other forms of consumption? And and I'm also interested in, in kind of attaching this word consumption to art as something that has monetary value, because um, it strikes me as 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 we circle along through here and think about the sort of utopian or dystopian undertones of this podcast as that's our shtick. Um, one poss possible danger, if there is a danger in machines producing art and machines producing art that like seems to be judged as or if not more good than human art, is that 
artists are people who make money selling art at times. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If a machine it, essentially like it gets in into that labor market and then is able to produce as or not better art without 20 years of professional training, but rather, you know, 20 minutes of, of uploading an app. Um, is, is that, is that really bad? Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting because this feels like it's directly relevant to kind of your original art field, right? Because, because, oh, yeah. Because, because ceramics are now produced like beautiful ceramics. I mean, like yep. go to, go to, uh, um, Ikea, like, Fairly attractive ceramics are right. produced by, like for like three dollars. Like I can get a right. really, I can get a bowl for three dollars that would previously be considered like an art piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you even go back to many of the potters who were um, my idols as a young potter, you know, learning my craft. They they had to make a living. Uh, Soji Hamada, who was National Living Treasure in Japan, and he had many, many people working for him. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to learn how to make enough pieces that you can actually generate enough of an income. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's been a, an issue within the fine craft for a long time, basically, at what point does mechanizing the production mm-hmm. of creative output kind of obviate the, the artistic right. intent of it. Right. Well, I, I feel like there's two different ways to sort of think about that or two different kind of reference points. For it. So on the one hand, like, and I'm going to get the artist wrong perhaps, although I'd like to think if I, if I get this, I'll get a, a bonus point for bringing up. Um, Rembrandt, I believe, had a fairly kind of production-oriented studio, if I recall yeah. correctly. Like, and many of the old masters mm-hmm. ultimately had at their later stage work in many cases was produced by junior people. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, the idea that art was ever this kind of pure living in a garret producing right. Right. like just out of your soul. Like for, for many of the people that we now think of as like our iconic artists, art was production. I mean, art was a, it wasn't that art wasn't a, it wasn't that art was a craft. They were always producing art, but the, Kind of the the further we've get we've gotten into kind of mechanized production, the more we've kind of created this sacred space mm-hmm. of art as a human as a as a finer human achievement that is almost like the idea that is somehow commercial almost like it gets separated further and further from the commercial almost as a way to protect the artistic achievement. Well, my second discipline as a young art student in college, printmaking, was you know. Exactly that. Many artists, you know, painters, Helen Frankenthaler, who was, went to Birmingham College uh, in the 40s, and, you know, and, and many of these very well-known abstract expressionists from the, you know, that portion of American art history turned to printmaking because they could produce works. You might not be able to be able to afford a Helen Frankenthaler painting, but you could have Right. Right. But so then on the other side, there's this there's this rise of crypto kitties, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> that this came out of the field. Of, right. No, but no, but I think it's related. Like, get, bear with me as I circle this one back around. So, so 
this idea, you know, we, we did a podcast a while back on cryptocurrency, but one of the things that the digital world has really struggled with was this idea of uniqueness, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we have really, and the cryptocurrency was an attempt to create essentially a, essentially a digital asset that you can own in a unique way, right? Mm-hmm. It is unreproducible. CryptoKitties is the either potentially benign or highly disturbing version of this, <laughs> which is essentially a quasi-artistic creation, a, a thing that you can buy that is unique. That is, it is a, it's a unique digital asset. It's a, it's a, it is, functions on the same idea of crypt, cryptocurrency, except it is a like little digital cat. Oh, can, well, it's like, it's like the next generation of the Tamaguchi. Right, right, exactly. So it's this Leave unique, it to the Japanese. Right, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that CryptoKitties are Japanese. We'll see who created them. Yeah. But, <laughs> but this idea of simply being able to have a digital asset that is demonstrably and provably unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you, and when you get into printmaking, when you get into, like, we, I, I know a uh, printmaker who, after 50 prints, Destroys the original, and yeah, many and, do to, right. to limit the to limit the production, right? right? But you have to artificially make it unique because the productivity, the production has actually gotten mm-hmm. has has gotten out ahead of the art, right? The or or there's something about the uniqueness that makes the thing. If it's not, if you don't destroy the original plate or whatever it is mm-hmm. that was used to produce it, the thing can't be art. Same photography is the same way, right? Right. Uh, although. Maybe less so now with digital photography. You can't destroy negatives, right? Um, but right, yeah, it's 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 it is interesting. So I mean, one of the things that I when I so my my first flash when you asked this question of can machines produce art, um, first thing that I flashed to interestingly enough is 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 kind of the great American art, which and the great American art form. I and we talked about this a couple. Uh, episodes ago, which is film. Film mm-hmm. is the great American art. And the first thing I flashed to was actually, well, when they decided to make um, House of Cards, and, they're, they're just, and Netflix's decision to, to purchase the rights to House of Cards was based upon essentially a, a fairly sophisticated data analysis that they did that said, this actor, Kevin Spacey, plus... Um, this director, God, I'm saying Joel Schumacher, I, I think I'm wrong on that. This subject, mm-hmm. this, like, is all going to align to being, and, and matches with the psychographic preferences of our, of our base, and that that's going to be, so this is a good investment. And then later, later Alpha House, which was produced by Amazon, and um, it didn't last long, but it involved John Goodman, Alpha House, it was based upon... Um, I think the underlying, um, who's the Doonesbury? Um, oh, I know. They were going. They were going to create this script. They were going to create this through basically um, crowdsourcing all these things <laughs> from the, and it ultimately didn't work. And they ultimately just went back to producing, uh, producing the show, kind of you know, in a traditional creative process. As films have become more and more, they try to entrench, you know, kind of encroach more and more. Into the creative space using algorithms and robotics. Yeah, and I, I'm interested. You know, like the the more I hear about the the think about psychographics, which is obviously like a dirty word at the moment. Um, yeah. Where, where, 
uh, and, and as I as we think again and again about the consumer and the user experience, I, it, it always make I, I always think about Turing in these situations and the idea of like you can't really tell whether whether a computer is thinking, but you can identify whether or not it successfully stimulates thought such that someone mistakes it for real thought. Um, that we're just doing these kind of Turing tests over and over and over again, and mm. that like underlying the Turing test is like what's disappearing or what's the centralization that is happening or the dissemination that is happening. Because I, I, I never can tell with this whether Netflix and Amazon and like there being a, this kind of proliferation of studios at the moment means that film is actually multiplying out of Hollywood mm. or whether these are just like profound, profound centralizations to like the, the few tech giants and like service giants who are now also like right. dispensing with the kind of creative uh creative members of the of the industry that used to do things like pitch shows and come up with mm -hmm. ideas and put ensembles together and you know this sort of thing um right that like those complex machines are are those used to be people you know right um, right and that right. freaks me out i mean those people used to like drive convertibles and like i just think about the character that the the, the Tim, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins' character in The Producer yeah. as being yeah. a person that's now being replaced by an algorithm. Right, right. <laughs> but, but what you're talking about is kind of the market research about right. what will sell. Right, right. And, and, and I think, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if many of my former studio craftsmen colleagues are keeping very good records, mm -hmm. maybe even using spreadsheets and technology right. to keep records of what is selling at you know, this craft show versus right. this craft show mm -hmm. and, and determining, oh, I should make more of this. But to me, those are, those are kind of marketing decisions. Right, right. I uh, think that they're the, not actually, you know, art production decisions. Right. I guess the place where the, 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 you can find it on YouTube and we'll put it in our show notes. The, um, the, the there's a screenplay produced. Ross Goodwin, I think, produced a screenplay, right? With uh, they basically threw in a bunch of sci-fi scripts into mm. it and produced a screenplay that they then tried to perform out. Right? Yeah, I think it's and called it, Sunspring. I think is the name of it. Sunspring, yes, yes. And I think the one of the actors from Silicon Valley's in it. Um, mm. So it's a little, it's a little like basically a digital short. And um, what's interesting about it is that. One of the things you said was that it felt like it's always it's always um, place setting and never delivering. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the, the the movie always feels like it's about to say something and it doesn't say something. And so as but you know so you as you go into this this cinematic production as you start throwing um, robots into the actual production of film whether it's in the screenplay or whether it's actually like bringing actors back to life. Have them perform, and who is the, the the general from the latest Star Wars film? Is like they 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 were able to get him to perform without him actually being alive anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, you're starting right. to you're starting to have it. So I think you know as we get into this part of the show, um, in our show, um, this this question of like we can ask whether robots can produce art or not, but the fact is it seems like robots are producing art, and yeah, they have a hand. Right, right, and in some cases, they may very well be when you go when you go walk into your next kind of 
corporate meeting, there may very well be art hanging on the wall that is produced by yeah. <laughs> produced yeah. by yeah. robots at that point because right. that might be just be more efficient. Um, so is that apocalypse or utopia? <laughs> So as our as our guest here, why don't you start off? So so we've never had we never let I know, anybody this is else. Exciting. This is exciting. <laughs> Somebody else can run this this totally minimalizing <laughs> <laughs> like scale of one to ten. So so just to introduce you to this, although I think you've heard the pod before, you say no. Like uh, one is utopia that whatever whatever. No no ten is utopia. Trend, oh, ten is utopia. Excuse me. So tennis utopia that that this trend is this robots producing art and the maybe the increased use of robots either as a as a support in producing art or ultimately producing art on their own is a ten. It's leading us towards a utopian future of, of great beauty and achievement. And one is a digital hellscape. <laughs> <laughs> one to ten. So, robots as artists. So uh, and you're not gonna say, you know, you can you gotta throw out the two in the middle no, 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 no. We wallow in fours and fives all the time. That's we equivocate up the wazoo. So, for me, based on my experience of being somebody who, for my entire lifetime, basically, has been involved in some sort of creative endeavor, whether it's you know, as a hobby or professional, and generally I'm professional. I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's smack dab in the middle. It's five. Mm. Because, you know, to ignore what technological advancement can bring to the table to sort of the human experience, the human endeavor of being creative um, is, is foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, but to completely say I'm going to basically take the human out of the, the equation is equally foolish mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. because at the end of the day it's you know it's all about the human experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I'm gonna go with a five <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you uh, jump in, uh, Toby. Take 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 the second uh, part yeah, on this one. I think I think I'm gonna do a seven. Um, oh. Yeah. Ooh. No. And listening Whoa, to what? Yeah. I know. I know. I, I there's a little bait and switch there, but. Uh, uh, wow. Yeah. I'm this, surprised. I know. Yeah. We're all surprised. <laughs> no, Peter has convinced me. Uh, oh, although not to a five. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. He convinced you with his his totally middle of the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, part of what I think about it is so so we're living in this moment in history that's I, I think a little bit of a like I, I think things that seem normal are not really normal. Like as as human beings existing for like the modern human has existed for something like thirty thousand years. The modern sort of like human existing in formations that we might kind of recognize as sort of like nations and communities and that side of stuff, maybe, I don't know, 3,500 years or something like this. And this is also around when we start recognizing things like art. And for the vast majority of that time, like this distinction between art and craft 
seemed both non-existent and uh, when implied, like often kind of artificially applied up until like the industrial era when there's like suddenly this proliferation of certain kinds of factory labor and then also certain kinds of mechanization simultaneously. And, and that leads to people working in kind of mechanistic fashions and people living in these sort of standardized modes uh, increasingly at, at the scale, you know, the kind of exponential growth rate of, of human beings that we recognize today. Um, it seems like maybe one thing that's happening though, and, I, and this shows up in my students' projects here a lot at Georgia Tech, is that kind of what machines are doing possibly in inserting themselves into like that kind of repetitive work. I mean, Peter talked about how you had to train yourself to be able to make a certain number of pots in order to actually be able to make a living. And that mm -hmm. making something beautiful or coming up with something beautiful versus forcing yourself to produce, produce enough numbers of items are actually maybe slightly different impulses that we might think of in art, artistic production. And that maybe part of what's happening is that computers are actually making it clearer and clearer how important and how significant that like the creative aspect of this entire construction is. And that we've just kind of mm -hmm. lost that over the course of industrialization, that like we weren't necessarily alienated from that previously. So maybe this is leading somewhere good. Hmm. You think that if we're, now that our robots are looking at producing art, maybe we're not going to kind of debase our, our human, um, kind of our industrialized human experiences. Maybe we'll, we'll push towards everybody um, just living a more artful life. Well, one of the things I hear Toby saying is, and this could be maybe more of a future is, you know, sort of the, the quote, gig economy that, mm -hmm. that many of sort of these sort of AI and te technological um, enhanced experiences have produced in a way facilitates the ability for, for humans to have an easier path to the creative life. Yeah. Produce yeah. creative work. Mm hmm. Where they're, where they're more focused on the, the creative, the point of creation rather right. than the right. point of production. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Gosh, I find myself here. Can I tap out? We've already had two Apocalypse uh, <laughs> or Utopias. This is, the, the audience has gotten what they've paid for. Oh. <laughs> um, oh, man. I know. You just want to say seven, but now you can't because I did. I know. You, you totally took my space. You know what? Let me let me let me do this just to before we all become like utopianists about our 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 robot our artful robot overlords. I just want to raise a couple dangers, perhaps, mm -hmm. of this, which is um, so. Let me let me give it a four, and I'll explain my four here, which is, um, and I feel like I'm 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 arguing a little bit of the other side of the coin when it comes to something I've said in the past, which is um, robots tend to be derivative right robots by nature kind of mm -hmm. have to be the way that we construct our robotic thinking even our very sophisticated robot brains are, are inherently derivative and if we go back to kind of what you were talking about um, earlier Toby and I'm going to rely on your citation um, in terms of this kind of this, this kind of godlike inspiration mm -hmm. saying like something something can can evolve 
maybe outside of the reference points that it has in its immediate environment. And it's also worth saying, just as like a little footnote here, so like part of the, what the Romantic poets are also talking about and arguing about is copyright law. Mm. So when you produce an idea, do you own that idea? And should you be right. paid rather than like the producer? Uh, so it's like right. if you make a poem and then a publisher takes that poem and prints a thousand copies of it, do they owe something to you as the originator? Right. Right. And that's really interesting. I mean, thinking about like the romantics interfacing with industrialization when you start having kind of these mass production techniques. Um, and I'm sure based upon what I know about the, um, the, the late 19th century British uh, economy and, and commercial sector, they were not particularly good at citing their work when they, <laughs> when they printed off a thousand copies of anything. Um, but, but I think, I think my real concern is, is actually the degree to which derivative work starts defining the scope of creativity around it. So I, the idea that robot produced work is then derived from other work and then, and then people start learning to appreciate, like that starts becoming the totality of one's kind of influences, start becoming a, a very derived set of influences. And the idea of really kind of having, having sui generis creativity that isn't just extrapolated from other types of pre-produced creativity. I, I would say that that's, that's my one concern. And add to that the fact that I'm not sure that, you know, crypto kitties aside, whether we really <laughs> figure out how to handle kind of the commercial uniqueness once you start getting into, and this is going to be totally business-like of me to say this, like where does... When, robo when robotics and artificial intelligence starts producing the human-type creativity, where, do we, where does the world continue to commercially support artistic producers that are human? Like, do we, do we start crowding out the last of our human artistic producers such that we start losing that, um, that authentic space? If, if machines are making professional art, it doesn't mean people will stop making art. It might just mean right. art is decoupled from economic value. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, just a, one last point on what you're saying, Darian. You know, um, one of my favorite folk singers, Child of the 60s, um, was Pete Seeger growing up. And, and, and he had a quote, he would say, Plagiarism is basic to all cultures, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know many of the great artists. If you really study their work, there's always a reference to something they saw or someone else's mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we the human condition is such that we can't help but be influenced, right? Um, and those humans who are writing those algorithms for those robots that are going to produce the next generation of great works of right. art are influenced just, right. you know, just well, so the question is, are the algorithm writers or the robots right. the artists, right. ultimately? Right. <laughs> and we'll pour another drink and we'll go well into the morning on that one. Right. <laughs> so for maybe perhaps another podcast, Peter, thank you so much for, for My joining pleasure. us. Thank this you. This is lovely. Right. So uh, great. Until next time, Toby. Uh, I think we we have coming up next our um, our our second episode in our um, 
in our in our I, I think what will probably be a three part series, two guys in a garage. Oh yeah, I've, I've yeah. heard the clip. Right? And and, and we um, we failed to make this episode multiple times now. We have failed multiple times. The first was because we recorded it and it wasn't good because you had like bronchitis at the time, and the second because we you weren't available. So so I we now have a perfect three part narrative to take us into the uh, the the recording of what will ultimately be our transcend transcendentally successful. Um, uh, second part on failure in Two Guys in a Garage, and um, yeah, keep keep listening. Um, rate us on whatever podcast device you listen to. That will uh, we we always appreciate that. And uh, till next time. Hey, talk to you later, man. All right, love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.